This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, both is good. How bisexuality is represented in speculative fiction. Ah, now, uh, if you have been listening to us uh, for any length of time, you will probably have already figured out that that we, the dragons, care about good, diverse representation in speculative fiction. Um, Things that include everyone. And we really do mean everyone. Um, And we've, we've talked a lot about gay and lesbian representation, um, and a fair bit about trans representation as well, but ironically, considering both of our sexualities, we haven't really delved into bisexual representation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Now, what sort of made me think this was, there's there's this excellent book of essays I'm reading at the moment, which is absolutely going to give rise to a future, probably a horror podcast. Which makes it sound dicey, but it's not, I promise. Um, but I'm reading it. I'm reading it at the moment, and there is a great essay in there called Both Ways, which um, it sort of delves a little bit into looking at uh, bisexual representation in mm-hmm. in the horror industry. Um, and it challenged a few ideas that I think most of us generally hold or accept as being mm-hmm. the way that things ought to be and it made me think actually sometimes I think I've been a bit harsh yeah. in my judgment on some things um, so basically there is always another way of looking at things and what might be poor representation for yeah. you personally or me might well be exactly what someone else needs and I think sometimes I need to cut people a bit more slack on that front and not immediately yeah. leap to oh well that's terrible representation um, but anyway, we'll explain more about that yes. later. Okay. So, um, I, I mean, I guess we should probably start with the definition. For, 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 good, good place to start is with the de- yeah, that's, definition. Yeah, that's probably a good place to what go. Is bisexuality. <laughs> um, so, the term bisexual was coined uh, sometime in the 1930s and was recognised as a third main type of sexual attraction. Uh, now, despite what p- many people currently believe, and despite the slightly misleading title of this episode, uh, bisexual referred to people who were who would happily engage in heterosexual relationships and whatever relationships were classified as homosexual, which was everything else. So the both of bisexual actually refers to all types of sexual or romantic relationships, not just male and female. Yeah. In addition, bisexual was used bisexual was used as a term until comparatively recently to refer to people who naturally slid up and down on the gender spectrum regardless of their sexual attractions so we are yes. all a mixture of attributes that are considered male or female inverted commas it doesn't matter if you are the girliest most pink-brained woman ever you will have some attributes that are traditionally considered male same uh, same as if you are the manliest man who ever manned um the reason is that while certain gen- <laughs> same if you are He-Man himself, exactly the eighties version of He-Man as well. None of this namby pamby new stuff. 
<laughs> the reason is that while certain genders may be more attracted to certain attributes or qualities or activities than others, um, and we're not going to ignore biology here because it is a player in this theatre, it's just yes. not the only player. Um, the attributes themselves <laughs> are human attributes. So qualifiers male and female have been added later based on what seems to be a slight biological preference and a certain amount yeah. of um, social conditioning. But both of those things are important. I, I kind of don't get on board with anyone who says it's all one way or all the other. So I suppose like a true bisexual, I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm in the middle and I'm seeing, I'm seeing the whole thing here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am literally on the fence here. <laughs> I am I'm literally the court. on the fence, as always. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So, um... <laughs> but all that aside... If we put that aside... Yes. <laughs> you should always use the terminology that makes sense to you. There's no need to let anyone else dictate how you identify or whether you even want to identify. It is fine to live without labels as well. Um, and we are not ignoring terms like pansexual or queer here, but rather than say every uh, vaguely um, anog <laughs> analogous... <laughs> I cannot speak. Thank you. Inalegant. <laughs> I can't say it. I can't say it, Jules. I can't say it. Um, rather every than vaguely use similar. Vaguely every similar. vaguely similar term <laughs> each time. For the purpose of this episode, we are just going to use bisexual. Um, and we mean everyone who falls within sort of that grouping. Uh, now, finally, we acknowledge yeah. that every group which deserves representation in speculative fiction faces its own unique slights, problems, and misrepresentations. But that would be an entire podcast series. Um, so we're just going to look at the trials and triumphs of bi-representation today. Yes. This brings us to The Hayes Code. Um, yes. If you're not familiar with this, the Motion Picture Production Code was a set of industry guidelines for the self-censorship of content for most motion pictures applied, oh, well, sorry, applied to most motion pictures, um, which was done by every major US film studio between 1934 and 1968. So really, if you think about how the US cornered the film production market, um, they had a tremendous influence over the whole film industry yeah and yes obviously you have um like french independent films and things which didn't awful lot for sort of more marginalized groups of people um most people will, will watch it more people basically were watching films from the u.s films from the uk and the uk was very heavily influenced by yes. the u.s um anyway it was popularly known as the Hayes Code after Will H. Hayes, who is the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America from 1922 to 1945. Yes, so the, the code spelled out acceptable and unacceptable content for public audiences um, and started being actually really quite rigidly enforced um, in 1934. You might suddenly go, okay, but hold on a second, why are you bringing this up? Well, it's left the film industry with one hell of a hangover, essentially. It was the, the mother of all cocktails. 
<laughs> really was. Um, it really was. Um, and instead of restricting content based on what was essentially a decency law, it has become a habit. Yeah, so as well as restricting content such as nudity, violence, rape, profanity, and white slavery, which you could not portray on screen for a long time there, mm. um, it also restricted all forms of LGBTQ plus representation on screen. Yeah. The unwritten but rigorously enforced formula being that queer characters must not experience happy endings. Either they die or experience a death by apotheosis by the end of the film, or in a lot of cases, other bad stuff happens to yes. them. It's quite possible that some of the Berry Our Gay tropes has its roots in this industry standard. Um, in that yeah. it, it literally is basically, if we have any kind of portrayal at all, it is going to be a sad, a sad one. It has to be. That is the only way that the portrayal is allowed to kind of slip in. Yeah. And... I think that the problem is that it gave rise to a mindset and even when people were trying to be more inclusive they then didn't know what to do with um, queer characters Yeah. so what happened was the queer characters didn't really need to be there because their character arcs didn't really add anything so they tended to get killed off um, which just sort of entrenched the mindset yeah. and I don't think a lot of it was necessarily deliberate after a certain point um, but it was a problem that kept going and has been going up until comparatively recently, although I think people are slightly more aware of it now. Now, the Hayes Code came about because the film industry had had several high-profile scandals, including rape, murder, and gangster connections. And the Code was an attempt to rebut the accusals of the film industry being a source of violence and immoral behaviour. Um, and it obviously went far too far. However, it's clear even from watching early films that a lot of queer people were working in the film industry and they got through the Hayes Code by hinting, satirizing, and making any sort of queer rep comical. And this wasn't a new thing either. I mean, um, one only has to look at Oscar Wilde and the importance of being earnest to see that yeah. people have been doing this for yes. a very, very long time. So this wasn't kind of a new kind of way of getting around things it was and and i think in some ways that was why it it was so successful was because people went oh yeah i've seen this kind of joke before i've seen this kind of thing in the theater all the time um and so it went over a lot of people's heads who weren't part of it <laughs> Bliss, blissfully unaware that it was it was gay um and I realise that many people now find this distasteful, but I think they don't really appreciate how brave these original creators were in getting yeah. some kind of rep out, despite the black barring um, of this haze code, um, at the risk often of their own jobs, reputations, and in certain instances, their well-being and lives, because you did not come out in Hollywood. You know, people might know, and in some ways there was a bit more tolerance because people were like, it was something that was encountered more. Um, but at the same time, you didn't advertise the fact. You weren't open about it. And in some cases, it wasn't safe to be. So mm -hmm. I always think of Some Like It Hot, um, which has Marilyn Monroe in it. And it's a funny film. It really is a funny film. But one of the two guys at the beginning is, is two guys who disguise themselves as women <laughs> on a train full of female musicians who are doing a tour. Um, who are trying to get away from, I 
I can't remember if it. I think both the law and sort of like this gangster affiliated group are going after them, and that they are you know trying to save their own lives. Um, the bit that always strikes me is that one of them is is kind of pushed into going on a date with a very wealthy man, and somewhere along the way, being. Um, acting as a woman kind of just becomes an end in of itself because he has a wonderful night and yes we're supposed to believe that it's funny that it's a laugh <laughs> and whatever what and whatever else um but they kind of turn it on its head at the very end of that film by by he sort of says look you don't understand you can't marry me because i'm a man and he pulls his wig off and the the, the wealthy man sort of says i don't care nobody's perfect and it's yeah, it, it it is this entire yeah. joke where he's like a oh you know uh, it's like a, well I can't have children fine we'll adopt. It's like oh, look you can't marry me I'm a man nobody's perfect. <laughs> and a lot of people have criticised that since then, saying yes they've made gay people the butter the joke whatever queer people the butter the joke. I don't think that's what was happening. I think they knew exactly what they were doing, and that was a way of getting something out there and saying we're still here. You can't completely erase us we don't care if you laugh because that way you think we're harmless yeah. but we're still here i always liked it i always thought that was a great so yeah <laughs> i always liked it yeah <laughs> i thought it was great um it's something that black out of the fourth plays with as well <laughs> yes they, they they do do that as well don't they yeah Although there's never the coming out of I'm actually a man moment, which uh, yes, <laughs> which might have changed the tone of that one slightly. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's it's something we need to bear in mind. I believe I don't think bringing 21st century um, judgmental attitude um, in on circumstances that are almost a century old now mm -hmm. or very close to. Um, it was a different mindset, and that's not to say that it was better or worse or what have you. I think it's just to say we need to look at these things with an appreciation of what the circumstances of the time were like. Yeah, and what it meant for, for real people during that time as well, which it doesn't mean yeah. for other people now. Um, one thing I kind of like to sort of, to sort of remind people is that when it comes to sort of looking at things in history, um, context really, really is incredibly important um, because we tend to live in cycles. Um, we live in, in political cycles. We live in, in, yeah. in, I mean, even fashion has cycles uh, where because, you know, and architecture and stuff, because certain people are raised with a certain type of thing, that becomes the standard and the standard then wants for change. Um, not to derail too much, but if you look at the French Revolution and stuff like that, where did this whole idea of this decadent sort of uh, control of the uh, you know the aristocracy all being in Versailles and being so totally disconnected from what was happening etc. Well, it came from another place which was at one point the aristocracy were all conniving against each other, and uh, basically one of the princes went right. You are all going to be here where I can see you and I can actually keep an eye on what's happening because I don't trust any of you people because you're very untrustworthy, because you keep doing stuff. Um, and that stuff was costing people lives. And so there would have been a 
point where actually all of these this aristocracy all being in one place would have actually been a relief for a lot of people because if they were all in one place you know what they weren't doing fighting each other um plotting against the king <laughs> plotting against the king the other people getting murdered etc for a time you know there would have been actually a, a bit more of a sense of peace um uh, uh, relatively um but then of course that had negative effects um but those negative effects were a you know um were jumping off of what had already happened what was already occurring um and wouldn't have been possible without it. So it was built up. Um, and that is the same, I think, when it comes to thinking and considering representation. Um, because we can turn around and say, well, this created that, this created this, and this has meant now that gay people are always the butt of the jokes. And it's like, okay, yes, but it's a step up from what there was before. And you do need to understand that context. Why is it the way things are? because of this and at that time that did create a positive or a negative difference yeah absolutely okay let's look at the difficulties of bisexual representation so aside from the obvious problem that all non-heterosexual representation faces i.e how do you do it without it being about coming out or just always about sex um, as if yeah. you know being any kind of other identity doesn't inform and affect the rest of your life in subtle and overt ways. Um, there's mm -hmm. also a set of unique issues that are faced by bisexual folks. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, I think the big one for me is, first of all, of, is erasure. Yeah. Um, and that is the, that's the thing. When people can put you in one little box or another, um, they know where to find you, whereas if you tend to be sort of swimming in the grey a bit more, as it were, um, then you're nearly always doomed to lose half your identity, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a thing that happened with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. Um, I've heard people say since that they liked the way Willow's rep was done. Um, personally, I don't, because they had so much in there. She had that, you know, years-long... Uh, crush on Xander. She was actually yeah. in love with him. Uh, she had a crush on Giles at another point. She's had a crush on various other boys and things. Um, and then it's kind of like, no cut-off line, Ooh, you're gay. Because it would have been confusing to the audience if she wasn't yeah. one thing or the other. And that I won't say it did me damage, but that didn't help me yeah. personally. It was this idea of this the complete removal of any validation of, of her previous feelings of her previous attractions which were they weren't real um and so if you do find that you like girls either you you're that's not a real emotion so you're not or you are 100 percent gay and you were never any of the feelings you had for other people were never valid yeah um with this comes the latent suspicion that I would say more bisexual people probably experience because of erasure, i.e. Mm -hmm. the you are not gay enough quota or you are not straight enough quota. Yes. Um, uh, which, which is oh, also very frustrating. Very, very, very frustrating. Um, so I just, I like what I like, okay? Yeah. <laughs> not, maybe I'm not, or maybe I am very attracted to the outside container, but 
you know, the outside container is never a deal breaker for me. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Maybe you have a specific type in whatever gender. Yeah. Um, and then this also comes with the idea that bisexual people are sex fiends fulfilling some sort of quota who will flirt with everyone. Um, in other words, you know, bisexual characters aren't fussy. Anyone is fair game. This also can mean that bisexual characters are shown as being predatory as well. Yes. Yeah, that's... Um, yeah, or... I don't know. It, it comes with a lot of negative connotations, and I think they're different for sort of, you know, male-presenting and female-presenting yeah. characters as well. Uh, they come from the same place, but the the issues are sort of yes. geared in a slightly different direction. Um, then there's the whole bisexual girls are only doing it to get male attention or to be a bit wild before settling down to a, to a traditional marriage. Uh, this kind of feeds into the whole sort of, you know, some lesbians being not interested in dating bisexual women because there is the chance that they might get left for a man kind of thing. Um, um, there's obviously a, a fair few slurs and things that go with that. And I, th I, I want to present a different opinion here which is you know the whole bisexual girls are doing it only to get male attention well sometimes two yeah. girls might do something like that as a bit of a laugh but no one's ever really considered the idea that you know to sort of make men shut up around them and pay attention might actually be the excuse yeah. for them to try something they wanted to try for a long time yeah. <laughs> if you see what I mean rather than uh, oh, actually, yeah, you're only you're not attracted to this person at all. You're putting on a show, but maybe it's not a show. Maybe it is actually you're hanging out with your best friend. You've always wanted to snog yeah. your best friend, <laughs> and a good way of doing that, a good excuse for doing that, without anybody losing mm -hmm. any face or anything, or having to put their feelings out before they really understand what they are. I don't know. I think being bisexual sort of has a lot of. I'm not saying that other. Uh, you know, sex, sexual identities don't have this, but I think a lot of it is questing around for kind of where do I belong? What what what's the matter with me? <laughs> yeah, and the thing with any kind of sort of queer, you know, relationships and stuff like that, is that it's not just the risk of oh rejection; it's the risk of total rejection as a human being and violence and you know, all of that as well. Which means that if you turn it into a game, then it's a game. And if you see people suddenly reacting in a certain way, you go, hey, chill, chill, you know, this was just about male titillation, etc. Oh, you can even turn it um, a bit further and say, oh, you're not homophobic, are you? You know the, what, <laughs> what that really says about you. That old chestnut. Yeah, exactly. I'm not suggesting anyone do that, by the way, but I, I know that that no. is how people have kind of played off that in the past. Yeah, if they felt unsafe, you know, people will do what they have to in order to try and survive certain situations. And so when you kind of also remove people's ability to question and to explore safely, um, you're uh, by saying, you know, this is just meant to be kind of some appropriation, some titillation, and it makes things difficult, you are actually also putting genuine queer people in in a dangerous position and and at the same time 
kind of uh, enforcing certain ideas about gender and sexuality too. Yeah, I think the other issue is that, I mean, um, obviously bisexual boys are actually gay men is another perspective on this, which is kind of like the the, the, the mirror of the girls are only doing it to get male attention thing. And I think the, the issue is that there's this pressure that everybody has to know exactly who they are and what their labels are and how they identify in before they're allowed yeah. to do anything rather than well i'm kind of attracted to this person and i've never been attracted to a person of this gender before and i'd like to explore it without having to sign a fucking contract saying well no actually i am bisexual yeah. therefore i'm allowed to experiment <sighs> and what i would say is the whole that I say the experimenting thing. This, that gets given an awful lot of bad press, and people say, "Oh, so you're just bi curious?" Like yeah. most people are like, bi curious. Why, why are you acting like that's like, like that's Breaking the worst thing here. ever? <laughs> it's like, okay, yes. Like that's. <laughs> and maybe it's a case of I don't know. I could. I don't want to rant about this, but it, there, there is a there is a, a thing where you know most people are, are experimenting. Are you seriously telling me that? Not you personally, Madeline, but the, the, <laughs> yeah, the rhetorical yes, you out me. there. Me. Me personally. That you have never ever snogged somebody who you were kind of attracted to, and then halfway through you've gone, oh God, what was I thinking? I'm not attracted to them at all. Yeah. Um, in a sort of tradition, because I promise you there have been plenty of blokes out there. I've snogged them and then gone, oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> you know, actually, maybe I'm not attracted to you yeah. after all. And that's a normal teenage thing to do. That's a normal thing to do in your 20s and think, actually, I don't want this to go any further. I've changed my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so why is it such a strange thing that if it's two girls or two boys together... That it's kind of like, oh no, you're deliberately leading someone up the garden path there when you had no intention of following yeah. through. I guess. Yeah, no, I completely agree. <laughs> so, <laughs> source of my frustration right there. Um, anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so aside from uh, yeah, being bisexual is considered more deviant. This is yeah. an old, old tradition. That old chestnut. <laughs> um, thank you. It's kind of enforced by the Victorians, as in, like, okay, it's illegal to be gay, but at least we know where to put you. Whereas if you're bisexual, you're deliberately flouting the law. It's not that you have unnatural desires, it's you're yeah. deliberately trying to be unnatural. Um, which is actually kind of what Alistair Crowley, despite the fact that Alistair Crowley was not a good guy, but that was kind of what he yeah. was up against, uh, it, as an example. Uh... <laughs> I think this is where the kind of the idea of the monstrousness, you know, why a lot of people we've talked about a lot of people identifying with yeah. the monstrous, um, and I do think that you know it's part of this, which is that if you will call me a monster, then I that is what I will be, and I think that is what Alistair Crowley was trying to do, and again that was him reclaiming something, yeah. but it has resulted. You're in, all you're basically um, nymphomaniac yeah you're all just you're all just trying to be yeah you're trying to flout things you are doing this on purpose to be as difficult as possible and it's like no alistair crowley is is his own special breed Weird. of <laughs> of creature yes, absolutely <laughs> um one that bugs me on a, a level so deep and personal i can barely give voice to it but being bisexual is just a way station between being straight or gay and the big example here is that scene from Sex and the City where um, 
honestly, I can't remember the name of the character, but she, she said, oh, I think I might be bisexual because she's had um, some sexual experiences with a woman and enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everyone's like, you, you can't just suddenly be bisexual. Like, well, why can't you suddenly be bisexual? Well, because you're either straight or you're gay. And it's like being bisexual is basically being indecisive. You can't be yeah. poof, you're bisexual, or poof, you're gay. You just know. And quite frankly, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it. And it's. I think this is the other thing is that it it kind of ties into this idea um, that 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 it's always is going to be fifty fifty as well yeah which kind of amuses me in some respects uh because and i say amuses me amuses me in the way that it really actually ended up screwing a lot of things over for me uh in my youth because i didn't understand that i didn't know that you know i very much was coming at it from the point of view which was that if it's not 50 50 for you um then it's not real um and that's not correct and is actually sort of potentially a little bit dangerous as well to think like that um because we we're not geared that way you can be bisexual and still find that actually you do tend to prefer men um or that you tend to prefer women or that you tend to prefer whatever uh, you, you know <laughs> whatever you want um and other, there are other parts that sort of might tie into that you might be asexual you might be demisexual you know you might find oh actually um you know i'm a i am I, I tend to really like sort of um i tend to really like women um but i also really like um trans men um, am I therefore actually not? Am I really, you know, etc. And it, it kind of all starts to get complicated. And people can, uh, like, I have heard people really try and make the argument that to a bisexual person who, who who had really only dated sort of women before and then some trans men, and suddenly saying, "Yeah, but you're not actually bi, are you? You are just a lesbian." Um. Yeah. And it's like, well, first of all, way to go ahead and just completely erase someone else's gender. But I think they were trying to basically argue that the bisexual was erasing their gender, wasn't accepting their gender. And and they ended up sort of actually feeling, oh my god, is that actually what I'm doing? Because I've only ever been with, you know, um, women otherwise. And that I thought that that was actually all the only thing that I wanted. <sighs> yeah, it's just, it's a, I, I don't know. It was certainly something that was being touted in the 90s or late 90s, rather. Um, I have to say, I didn't even hear the term bisexual yeah. until I was about 17. Um, and I, that was the first time I met anybody else who was bisexual and I didn't really understand it. I mean, I would like to say here that I was 
actively opposed to <laughs> dating anybody at that point in my life. Um, I thought that I really only kind of was into males. And at the same time, I had had various experiences with girls. But I put that down to the fact that I was yeah. just really comfortable with my sexuality. <laughs> so comfortable that I was straight that it was fine. I could just go off and do things with girls and it didn't mean anything at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so straight I can, that I can, I can... I can occasionally I can be... visit the other camp. Well, actually, it wasn't that occasion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's only... And I think it was only when I got to university I went, well... Um, I, I'd call myself straight, but at the same time, at the time I had crushes on girls, there were instances with girls as well, and even though I was calling myself straight, I said at that time that I've never really fallen for a woman, and I'm not writing it off completely. So even then, yeah. my definition of straight, inverted commas, was incredibly bendy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was literally straight until proven wrong. <laughs> And it wasn't something that I, I didn't adopt the label until my 30s. So it's it's one of those things where I almost felt I didn't deserve to adopt the label because I thought I hadn't been persecuted enough to earn it. Yeah. And then I thought back over the years and thought, no, you dealt with all the shit that most people who are bisexual deal with. It's just because you thought you were straight, even though you had a very bendy definition of straight, you just ignored the fact that you've been persecuted for being bi it was all messed up um and a lot of that came down to the whole sort of the, the 90s push of you know it was more acceptable to be gay openly and it became progressively more acceptable all the way through um but you could only be one or the other you couldn't be both ergo so you've got to pick one and it's like well i i, I guess yeah. men then like i was just picking something off a shelf and hoping yeah. the colour would suit me. And know? that actually also leans into sort of gay representation and stuff in that they say you can only be one thing or the other or the audience is going to get confused. Yeah. I could have done with some good bisexual representation in my media. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's something that the TV show of The Boys picked up on because Queen Maeve is actually bisexual and when they discover that she's having this ongoing affair with a woman, they decide to make that part of their marketing campaign and they describe her as a strong lesbian woman and her partner, who I think actually is a lesbian, says, no, no, no hang on a minute, she's bisexual, stop calling her a lesbian, she's actually bisexual. They're like, yeah, yeah, but we, we understand from sort of focus groups and whatever that most audiences don't like the ambiguity of bisexuality, they prefer the whole sort of one or the yeah. other. And I'm like, yeah, actually, you really captured that, that's yes. true. <laughs> <laughs> so well done the boys for that bit, at least. <laughs> okay, so let's get into that very murky territory of queer baiting. Yeah. So shows with bisexual characters will get accused of this more than any other show, I think. Yeah, this isn't just me pulling something out of my arse here. This is kind of, they've done various studies and things, and statistically they those sort of shows tend to get in more, possibly because of the audience confusion. Um, and we're going to get into why. Um, if we just maybe define queer baiting to start with, just so that anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about... Yes. Uh, so queer baiting is when something is uh, very 
is sort of joked at, hinted at, even sort of um, played around with to the extent that the, basically the marketing team are trying to dangle the possibility of a queer relationship of, of, of queer characters um, to their audiences, uh, where it almost feels like, yes, this could actually be a real thing that is actually genuinely going to happen, but then they never deliver on it. Um, and queer baiting was literally, the term was literally created to refer to uh, supernatural um, and has since been something which has uh, been thrown at quite a few uh, TV shows, not least uh, Sherlock, um, who in the latest trailer they literally put a scene where they framed it that it looked like uh, Sherlock was confessing to John um, that he loved him and then obviously that wasn't yeah. what was happening but they literally framed it that way and it was done intentionally in order to kind of trick or appeal or make people believe ah if you stick around long enough this could actually happen um and it won't and it's never intending to happen and then people actually even get mocked for it yeah yeah it's it's kind of another way of betraying your reader isn't it like yeah. cliffhangers or what have you and it, it's done quite cynically mm. in order to get views in order to get money um and it's not the kindest way to treat loyal fans no. or even fans who are like, you know what, I'm leaving the franchise now because it's it's just not happening. Yeah. You should just let them go. Um, and, and it's also the weirdest form of, of um, yeah. gaslighting as well, where they'll do it and then they'll say, what are you talking about? We have never made any promises of this. We have never, this was never going to be the case. And it's like, you've done it. It's done in a very insidious yeah, I mean, I think there are genuine creators out there who are like, no, I've put a strong red-blooded male into a role, and, and actually they're not as good at doing that as they think they are. So Stephen Moffat, for example. Um, yes. It just... Um, and there and there are definitely ones where people... I've seen people say, this is clear queerbaiting, and I turned around and said, actually, no, it isn't. You have wanted it. You have got it in your head that it is. But this has not been in... They have not been intentionally... Um, you know, put down as queer, um, you have, you've just identified with them, uh, but they actually have, are very clearly, you know, all of the, the elements of sort of queerness that you're drawing up on can also be explained by other, other parts of them, because weirdly enough, there are crossovers with different sort of minority groups and things like that, and some of their experiences, obviously not the exact same, but etc. Um, yeah. And so, and and we have. I've also just mentioned that we have also talked about in the past times where people have said, "Well, this is queer baiting," and what's happened is that actually there have been restrictions on what showrunners or or people are allowed to do, and so the actors, the characters, have basically tried to bring in representation in the best way they can, despite not being allowed to make it canon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, as, as Madeline said, there are definitely things which have been accused of queerbaiting, which are actually engaging with the idea that all of us at some point will swim in yes. bisexual waters. Um, we might pass through them on the way to a definite sexuality, or we may revisit those waters at different points in our lives, or maybe we never leave them, yeah. even if we thought we had. Um, it does, so, it, you know, it kind of doesn't matter if you zoom through on a speedboat you know, on the way to get to somewhere else or whether you're taking a leisurely trip on a punt, you know, you, you yes. will have been there at some point. Absolutely. 
Um, it, it kind of plays around with that idea that queer people were born that way. Um, and it's actually done more damage. Well, it, it's done as much damage as it has helped because obviously a big part of that was, um, you know... It's an involuntary characteristic, sure that, isn't it? It's Yeah, it's stopping people thinking that people were doing it by choice um, and that it's something that can be, in inverted commas, cured. It is, no, it's something that you are literally born with, um, you know, and that's that. But the problem with that was that... It, it was then sort of made, you know, people were made to sort of feel like it's the same as you're born with brown hair um, or <laughs> something like that. And that, yeah, you yeah. can dye it, but that doesn't mean that, you know, uh, you know, that doesn't change who you are. And if you are, um, you know, you either are or you aren't, you have, you know, for definite rather than saying, well, actually, perhaps our experiences with sexuality is a little is a little bit more fluid. Yeah, I mean, definitely some people, probably very, very, in fact, we know very, very early in their lives, even before they have any real sexual feelings, feel a definite pull in one direction or another, or even no pull at all, and that pull never materialises. But most other people are on a sliding scale when it comes to romance and sexuality, and it's pretty well documented now that many people go through cycles of sexuality and different sexual identities where they have a preference for one gender or another at different points in their lives, and they, they'll cycle through. I'm thinking of a, a, an article I read by a man who'd, who'd always identified as gay all through his teens and his 20s, and his, he got to his mid-30s, yeah. and he started noticing women. And then finally he met one whom he really fell for, and they got married and they had children. And then much, much later on, he was widowed, um, his children had grown up, and he found himself yeah. noticing men again. So, yeah, he very definitely went through cycles of what he what he wanted in his life, and it was all perfectly natural. It's just it didn't fit the two little boxes yeah. that a certain number of people seem to want others to fit into. And I believe that comedian Joe Lycett um, also kind of came out as bisexual having identified as gay for a very long time and he suddenly turned around and said actually I'm bisexual um, I don't know his full story um, but I do think it was that he suddenly turned around when actually it's not just men um, but perhaps it was yeah. more men growing up um, yeah I remember something Stephen Fry said in one of his volumes of autobiography um, he said you know even the most stringent of us who are leaning one way or another on the sexuality scale, he said, even those of us will have that small sort of five to ten percent that is attracted to a very specific example of, yeah. of the other. And he said one of the, for him, one of his worst, most unrequited loves was was for a woman who was kind of like, you're kind of the wrong gender for me, but everything else is right, so yeah. it doesn't matter, um, and nothing ever happened. But, I mean, this is Stephen Fry, and he's pretty articulate yeah. on, and open on um, the subject. And I think this also ties in with the other element, which is that we tend to very much box in the idea of attraction with with uh, the desire for sex. And I think that, yeah, I think the thing is that yeah. you can be attracted not. to someone. You can even fall in love with someone, um, and you might not actually really it might have absolutely nothing to do with sex at all and everything to do with that and and again i think that is another element of sort of yeah. um sexuality as well 
Um, and so, for some people, I think it's always going to be. There are some people who definitely yeah. say, no, no, there has to be that sexual element for me. Um, and for some people, it's there has always been that sexual element for me until suddenly there wasn't. Yeah, which, you know, obviously this brings us on to the romantic friendship, which is almost a trope in and of itself, but it's a cliche for a reason. Um, and as Madeline said, um, and this might be the hardest point for some people to swallow, but often sex has nothing to do with it whatsoever. So as well as being bisexual, you may also be somewhere on the asexual spectrum, as we've mentioned. Yeah. If you're very demisexual and you grow up in circumstances where you're told you're either gay or straight or nothing at all, then you may form intense, romantic and utterly sexless friendships with same-sex friends. And to all intents and purposes, those relationships are very similar to a traditional heterosexual boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, except that you, you don't necessarily have the physical desire or the physical desire never manifests itself because it's being expressed entirely through sort of this romantic even platonic friendship type yeah absolutely mode. and of course you know as with bisexuality that can be with both that can be with any gender that you might develop this intense sense of yeah. this intense kind of romantic friendship as well um and uh, to be honest, it's it's one of those weird things where a lot of the bisexual people that I know have experienced this and have talked about this, you know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes those yeah. friendships genuinely are platonic. Um, sometimes they have all yeah. the markers of a love affair without sex. Um, and I have to say that there's one line from a book that has nothing to do with this discussion at all. Um, it's by Elizabeth Vine. And she says, it's just always stuck in my head, finding your best friend is a little like falling in love. Well, actually, really yeah. finding your best friend, someone who really connects with you, is a lot like falling in love. It, it's almost exactly yes. like it. In fact, <laughs> it, it is it, basically. <laughs> it just might not have the connotations of, of marriage and sex and wanting to have children together or, or not, or wanting a life together. Yes. So and Actually, it, it, it sort of brings on this fact that um, there have been cases, I think, where creators have said, actually, I want to represent male friendships and a positive male friendship between two people which is not highly macho which does involve them being close with each other and the way that people they've done that is they said oh they're like brothers instead um and this i think has has fed into the whole queer baiting element and has also fed into this uh this idea um a lot of fan fiction writer, writers now involving incest with actual brother characters because you have basically yeah. on the one side you've basically got these creators who are saying we are going to create this relationship between two people because we actually want to portray a positive and uh, a very nice friendship between men um, and this particularly came about during a time where we were following on from this this very um, masculine, not very healthy portrayal of male friendships. And obviously we've started to move away from that now, but there was a period sort of in the 90s where male friendships um, in the way that they were portrayed and stuff like that, it was very macho. It was very much that people were not talking about their feelings, um, you know, this competitive element. Um, and the fact is that we were also going through this period where men couldn't 
confess or talk to one another. And we still see it today. There is a heartbreaking video of, you know, people being interviewed saying, who do you go to if you are in trouble apart from your parents or things like that? And you've got a lot of women and they say, oh, well, I'd go to my best friend or I go to my mother or, you know, things like that. And you see all of these young men, it's like, who do you go to if you're feeling mentally down? And they go, no one. I, I don't. I, I can't go to no one. And it's not that, no, I'm not, I wouldn't go to anyone. Yeah. It's, you see the heartbreak in their face. You see the genuine look of, no, I, there is no one I can turn to um, because of the way that sort of friendships were being pushed. And so I really do think it, it, it's excellent to have this portrayal of male friends who are there for each other, who do listen to each other, who are given these more traditionally, I say in inverted commas, feminine sort of elements within their friendships, because it's a lot more healthy. Um, and and it's actually the way that people really should be, we're social creatures. Um, but what happened was that that was there, that was important representation, but then there was people who wanted to see themselves represented in terms of sexuality, who started to see it. There were people who sexualized it. And there were also cases where it was queer-baited instead. And it meant that any time any of those kinds of relationships were depicted on screen, suddenly they were queer. So you would actually get characters, the Winchesters, let's, let's just go back to Supernatural, the Winchester brothers, the way that they're sort of portrayed, and there are people who pair them because they even joke about it in the series, you know, and it's because of the way that this whole whole thing has gone. So it's this whole bag of yeah. mix, you know, which with good intentions and good possibility and has had a knock-on effect to this, that and the other and created this, that and the other. Yeah. Um, going back to the, the romantic friendship idea, or rather continuing on from it, um, it's it's still very true of women today that they will form these intense romantic or, you know, platonic, but essentially they are romantic relationships with other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's that been the case for centuries. I mean, you read the letters of any writer speaking to her, her best writer friend and you will get something. And sometimes those were genuine sexual relationships and sometimes they were unfulfilled romantic relationships and sometimes they were just, you know, you are the person I love best in the world yeah. kind of thing. I'd never think of marrying you, but you are the person I love best in the world. Um, it's harder to see with men for the same reasons that Madeline has just said. But I have to say, if you read some Edwardian literature written by men, it's clear that there were the, these great love affairs um, in friendship form um, that existed without sex, and they happened between men too. And weirdly, I reread The Wind in the Willows lately, and people are going to go, what the hell are you talking about? Well, the Wind in the Willows <laughs> is weirdly full of this subtext of homoeroticism, whereby... Yes, I would completely thank you. agree with you. I was reading and I'm thinking, this is kind of gay. And it's like, I don't think it's because <laughs> Kenneth Graham was actually gay. I just think he had these intense relationships with male friends that were romantic, but not sexual in nature. And it came out in his writing. And you've got Mole and Ratty, sort of, you know, absolute best of friends. Clearly, they love each other. They share a room. They, they've got bunk beds in Mole's house. And they've got little cubby beds in, in Rat's house. They've got this intense friendship with Toad as well, and and Badger comes in on it as well, like being the old mentor friend character. Yeah. But 
the way they talk about each other and the way that they will confide in each other. And Mo will sit and have a cry sometimes and Ratty will comfort him. They, they're the sort of things that, as Madeline was saying, you'd expect to see in the female friendships of the era, not the male ones, but he's got away with it because they're all animal characters and yet it's really, really yes. gay. <laughs> I, I do remember I saw a play of it uh, many, many years ago and one of the moments which which I immediately thought of the moment you said that was this moment with I think they were in Badger's house and they were mid-conversation and I cannot remember who it was but mid-conversation someone had fallen asleep in their chair beside the fire that's Badger probably and very yeah Badger and very tenderly very tenderly kindly another person covered them with a blanket yeah and this is a trope you see used often for kind of romance. And it was it was so beautiful because it was the I I was you know, I was in the middle of talking to you, but actually I see that you've been through a lot of something today. You're tired, you're exhausted. What I have to say to you can wait, but not only that, I'm going to cover you with a blanket. It was incredibly soft. And so beautiful, and I really, really loved the way that they did it. Um, it just, it stirred my heart. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's one of the same things I think of when I when I read sort of original Sherlock Holmes. Is I would I, I watched a lot of adaptations of Sherlock Holmes and people talking about how you know how queer coded and stuff it was, and I didn't see it really to begin with but by god when i was reading those originals i was thinking this this is a romantic relationship between these two these two men and i don't necessarily think it's sexual because i don't think holmes is a sexual person by any stretch of the imagination i i think he's probably very very asexual um but there is this absolute love between these two men they are they are kind of in a relationship of a sorts. Um, and I think the only time I've ever seen it really portrayed in a way that, for me, felt true to the nature of the books was with um, Jeremy Brett, um, Jeremy Brett's version. Um, again, because I think that the actors had a very close yeah. and meaningful friendship between one another. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Okay, let's look at some examples of good and bad bisexual representation in speculative fiction. And we may well not agree on all of these, because what works for me might not work for Madeline, and it might not work for you, or it might work for you and not work for me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and say this. Um, the Witcher, the latest season... If you haven't watched it yet, this is going to be a spoiler, though perhaps if you've been on any kind of form of social media and you keep an eye on these things, you probably know already. They have confirmed on screen that Yaskia is bisexual. Yeah. Um, I, I almost didn't need them to because I'd been reading him as bi the whole way through. I know. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't necessarily need him to have a romance, but I like the way it's gone. It's gone in an interesting direction. It has. Um for me it was incredibly important because it's something that we talked about previously and the fact that i felt that they they weren't necessarily baiting us um sorry it's funny because of course the actors called showy baiting so it's like they weren't baiting us um <laughs> they were baiting us uh no um 
I felt that the the actor was trying for something and he wasn't actually being uh, you know he he didn't have the he wasn't allowed to kind of go through with it so that was as close as he was getting he was kind of hinting towards things and i did hear that he basically wrote like a 6000 word essay basically saying listen Yaski is queer. Like we we can't pretend that he's not. Um, <laughs> and and I use queer rather than just say bisexual. He is bisexual, but um, yeah. And they went okay. And not only are we going to confirm this in epi- uh, in one of the earlier episodes where they literally have one of another character basically say, um, "You like this other guy." Um, and uh, that you have been with men before, or, or and not just men, but polymorphs, apparently. Uh, which meant that he definitely got with himself <laughs> from Blood Origins. Like, I'm pretty sure that's what they're confirming there, <laughs> is that he finished writing that song and then had sex with the polymorph. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, we're not just going to do that. We are actually going to give you a relationship on screen. Um, and for me, that was huge. It was very triumphant uh, because I felt like something had been delivered on, something had been listened to, um, and that they were actually bringing this version of the character to life. I really liked that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I wouldn't have bought it if they'd put um, Geralt and, <laughs> and, and Yeskia together no. somehow. No. Uh, no, I completely agree. I, I I don't think I would have bought that because this is the thing is I was always watching it and I always felt that Yaskia was in love with Geralt. And the implication still remains that yes, that he he did actually love him and that perhaps actually he's let go of that. He I mean he even has that beautiful song um sort of in episode two, uh yeah. where you know, it ends with I am enough. And for me, that yeah. felt like his response to, you know, Burn Butcher Burn, in that he's suddenly gone, actually, I have made peace with it. And perhaps my issue was not so much with you not loving me, but with the fact that I started to see myself as not being enough because of it. And I've made my peace with the fact yeah. that I am enough and that actually our friendship is enough. Um and so I would, I 100% believe that Yaskia was in love with Geralt. I never watching it. I mean, I I loved I love reading some, some fan fictions and stuff like that. But watching it, I never ever sort of read it. I never watched it and thought, yes, Geralt is in love with Yaskia. I always saw it as Geralt um, cares about Yaskia. In fact, <laughs> more reading the books, you might think Geralt loves Yaskia, because he's actually much sweeter to him in the books. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think they've done it well. Of course, Yaskia isn't the only uh, person we're going to be talking about today. Um... <laughs> well, he, he could be, if you imagine. That, <laughs> Don't call me out like this. Big character crush it's... right there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, now, this is one where I think it's going to be a bit mm-hmm. of a controversial opinion, because Jennifer's body is a... It, I think it came out probably about eight years ago now. It's been out for a while. Um, it stars Megan Fox and mm-hmm. Amanda Seyfried. I have no uh, is, idea. is it Seyfried or Seafield? Seyfried. And it's, it's, it's kind of this... It, it's a horror film, so Madeline may well have not okay. seen it, because I'm not sure it would be her something. But basically... 
what happens is you have the two best friends. You have Jennifer and her be- her best friend, her, um, her, who's called Needy. Her, her name's not really Needy, but it's a nickname for something else. And they are incredibly close. Um, Jennifer grows up to be incredibly beautiful and sought after by males, etc. Um, but it's always Needy she kind of comes back to. And I wouldn't say at any point in this film they declare that both mm. of them are bisexual or that they're really into each other. Yeah. But so many things happen in the film that make you think they are. The premise is that Jennifer is kidnapped by these frat boys and, or rather she's lured in by the frat boys and then it turns out not to be a wild night of fun. It turns out they're they are sacrificing a virgin in order to get a favour from a demon. The problem is that Jennifer is not actually a virgin. Ergo, mm-hmm. the demon takes over her body instead. And so you've got just got Jennifer wandering around, possessed by a demon. And yet it still has some of those feelings for needy that they had before. So there's, there's all sorts of things. Like when they were children, Jennifer cut herself and needy sort of kisses this, this small bloody wound on her hand. Um, there's the way that they're really quite sort of tender with each other. They know each other better than anybody else. It is a romantic friendship. It's almost a love affair without the sex. Um, later on, after Jennifer's been possessed by the demon, there is kind of a they're, they're making out scene. And I think, you know, people sort of assume that, you know, Needy's just obsessed with her best friend, but it goes both ways. Jennifer's just as obsessed with Needy. And in the end, Needy does actually have to kill Jennifer because, you know, demon running around killing people. And yeah, not great. Stuff's not, not so great. <laughs> but there's, there's all this stuff in there. And while I wouldn't say, yes, this is clearly um, a well-labeled example of bisexuality representation in horror films, the whole thing reads as really bisexual as two girls who one of them jennifer perhaps is she's tried a few boys and she's well on her way to sort of deciding actually no i only really like girls whereas needy is kind of like i kind of like both i think i might be a both person or an an everything kind of person um and that this really intense friendship up to the point where if you're possessed by a demon i will put your I will put you to rest yeah. kind of thing. That kind of that's Yeah, that's pretty intense. <laughs> and you don't know. I mean, if you just take a moment to think, well, what if she hadn't been captured by those frat boys and possessed by a demon? Would, that, would their friendship have gone all the way through the stages of them forming a, a long-term relationship? Probably or having a short-term sexual relationship whereby they both discover something about themselves before going their own separate ways. Again, it's a quite probably. And I just, I don't need the label to be there in that one. I just think it's actually a pretty good representation of how the lines blur in female friendships, particularly when you've got that really strong childhood connection that grows almost into sort yeah. of this romantic fervor me- and obsession for each other. This it's good because it also touches on it, it moves away from that fairy tale ideal, which is that um, you only ever need one person in your life, which obviously completely fails to recognise that as you grow up, you might also become a different person, and that y- someone can be right for you in that particular moment yeah. of your life, and it can be perfect, um, and you can you know everything can be going right, and then it's just you know you move away and you become someone else. And that doesn't mean that the relationship itself 
had any less value. Um, and for me, I think that it's incredibly important because it's something that gets overlooked in terms of that, the, the fairy tale that we get given a lot of the time um, of what what is kind of actually romance supposed yeah. to look like. Um, and why is this important? Well, it's important because it actually also plays into how we understand bisexual relationships, um, which is that as we touched on before, you might go through different stages in your life. Um, that doesn't mean you're not bisexual, you know, um, that you cease to be bisexual uh, during those those moments. It's just that, yeah, you know, sexuality and the way that that happens to be expressed during that period of your life um, is how that is going to be expressed. Um, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think part of the problem is it got accused of a lot of queer baiting, but I don't think that's a fair thing. They haven't put this in there as um, a way of saying we're 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 dangling this carrot and then we're going to snatch it away. It's yeah. in there because this is a genuine exploration of female friendship on all levels once it reaches that kind of intensity. Yeah, and I don't think we see quite enough of that, and I would like to see more of it. Yeah, as I said, I don't need a label on that one. Okay, so um, Evelyn Hugo in The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I've recommended this, so I won't go into too much detail. But Evelyn Hugo is basically a golden age of Hollywood film star who agrees to tell her life story to one lucky journalist. Um, and it turns out that initially what the journalist thinks the big reveal is, is that it, none of Evelyn's seven husbands were actually the love of her life. Actually, it was a, f a fellow actress, yeah. um, Celia, um, who was the love of her life. And I, again, this has been criticised as not being good bisexual representation, but actually I think it is because it's considering the circumstances and the context of the time. And we've talked about Hollywood and how safe it was to be openly gay or whether it would ruin or tank yeah. your career, etc. Um, and, and, you know, the journalist even says, so what are you telling me, that you're actually a lesbian? And Evelyn turns on her in fury and says, no, I'm telling you I'm bisexual. Do not erase half of my identity. Yeah. I've dealt with that my entire life. Um and it was a, that was a really powerful moment, I think. And it is really interesting. The love of her life turns out to be this woman, this one woman. And it might well be that sometimes bisexuality comes down to, yes, there's been all these men, and yeah. I mostly go for men, and then there's you. You are the reason I am bisexual, because there's, there's you, and you... It, again, this incredibly intense love affair that fell apart and got back together yeah. and fell apart and got back together until they, they basically yeah. grew up. I think together. a lot part of the criticism that went along with that was that people felt that it, it lent into the bury your gays trope um, as well. And I, I disagree. I don't think it does. Um, because you can. It's, it's not about sort of saying, right, we're going to remove this happy ending from. Uh, you know, um, characters uh, because they happen to be gay and that's just sort of part of their story because it's just a story about growing old as well. And Evelyn herself is, you know, it's the end of her life. That's why she's giving this interview to get some things yeah. off her chest. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, 
think bury your gays is when you bring somebody in and you make them gay because you need to yeah. have them be gay and it doesn't add anything to the story and then you kill them you kill the only gay representation um it's not for this is a character piece about a main character who as you say has reached the end of her life has lost the love of her life because she's died and is finally making a clean breast of it and saying, yeah. okay, if you want to remember anything about me, yeah. remember that the person I loved most in the world happened to be the same gender as me. I can finally tell the truth about it. So I think people are too profligate with terms like queer baiting and bury your gaze when they're not necessarily examining the actual subject material. Yeah. And I do think it's also fair to be able to say, actually, I don't want to read that form of representation because I'm sick of only absolutely. seeing sad stories. Um, that is, you are absolutely allowed to say that. You are absolutely allowed to say, actually, that's not for me. Um, I didn't like it because of this. And I've had enough tragedy in my life or I've seen enough of the this sort of tragedy represented. And I want something which is you know, sweet and warm and just full of the, the kind of the fantasy instead. You are absolutely allowed to do that. There is no problem at all. If you are more of a, a heart stopper person than a the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo, there's no problem with that at all. Um, but I think, it, yeah, it is important to recognise that it's not, I don't think it was done insidiously. It wasn't done with mal, you know, malintention and i think it's very important that there is even that line where she's saying don't erase that part of my identity i am actually using the term bisexuality because i'm all for sort of saying okay let's not use these labels but i'm also all for saying when it's appropriate let's use these labels let's let's not be afraid of them <laughs> yeah absolutely definitely okay um one that was probably the only example we had for a while in popular yes. media, Captain Jack Harkness in Torchwood and obviously Doctor Who. Who, I have to say, look, I really like the character. I kind of liked that he was flirty and he was an equal opportunities flirt. I don't think it's necessarily the best representation of a bisexual character. But you know what? Some bisexual people do flirt with everyone. So let's have that out there as well. Yes. <laughs> It's one of the interesting things in that, yeah, he is, he's very flirty, um, but he, it wasn't, again, they, they did it in a way that was quite innocent, I think. Yeah. And for me, that, that meant that it, I didn't find it offensive. I didn't roll my, yeah, it, but it was a sort of, oh, Jack kind of rolling your eyes because he could have, he could very well have just been the straight man there. And it wouldn't yeah. have changed, you know. He could have been the straight man who's just constantly chasing skirt. Um, his bisexuality really didn't have anything to do with his character. He was just someone who just really liked loving. And by God, he, he would love anyone. If he liked someone, he would go after them. And it didn't matter what their gender was. And I'm totally fine with that. Um, I'm kind of okay with it. But I can also understand people turning around and saying... But it is also putting forward this idea that uh, bisexual people are constantly chasing or after sex or only thinking <laughs> about that or, or will flirt with anything that moves. Um, and I think that if you look at yeah. Jack's character as, as he truly is, he isn't that. He, he doesn't just, he, you know, it's not that he looks at a Dalek and goes, hey, what are you doing later on? Um, he just, he, he likes people and he falls in love with people quick. And when he likes a person, he will take a chance on them. You know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, I forgot to mention a an example that is actually a really good example. It's from Schitt's Creek, and it is the son, and his name is David. David. <laughs> Just a really quick one. I liked the way they mm-hmm. explained it. Technically, I think they call him pansexual, but it, what the way he describes it as, he's, he's sort of explaining it to Steve. He's like, yeah, I like boys and girls and boys who used to be girls and girls who used to be yeah. boys. And basically, I just like the wine, not the bottle. And, and he, you know, when he finally gets married, it's to another man. But, you know, he's had this fling with Stevie as well. And Stevie's a really dear friend of his to the point where he's like, yeah. actually, you're the only friend I've got and I don't want to mess it up with, with sex stuff. And they kind of, they kind of get through it. And... It is just, it was really nice. It wasn't the entirety of his character because he's vain and he's callow and he's got a really long way to go yeah. character development-wise. And he does it and it's just a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. Um, that's that's the kind of rep that you want, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, quick shout-out for the character Stella Gibson in The Fall. The Fall is following um, Gillian Anderson's character, Stella, who is trying to catch a serial killer it's set in dublin and it's got jamie dawney in it as as the serial killer and it's really interesting and it's this, this mind games and things but what's interesting about stella's character to me is the fact that she is never said but she is basically somewhere on the sociopathic spectrum where she doesn't re you know she's very interested in tuning into why people do things but she doesn't really want a lot of people yeah. around except um you know for sex kind of thing so when she wants sex she will go out and, and find somebody um and she's very upfront about making the offer and then it's up to them and she's kind of equal opportunities on that there, there will be women as well as men she's got a slight more leaning for men than women um i don't think it i don't think this leans into the whole sort of like bisexual people must fulfill a quota otherwise the world explodes or whatever yeah um it's just that she is allosexual and completely aromantic. And I thought that was a really interesting combination um, mm. to the point where that made a final piece slide into place for me for Rebecca's character in Harker Blackthorn. It's like, oh, that's how you interact with other people. This coldness, this, this disinterest in human emotion and that kind of has yeah. its mirror in well you have needs that need to be met in some ways that are, that cannot be met entirely by yourself um but that is where you get your human connection from and you're not you know for some reason people do not seem to necessarily take you at your word when you say yeah this is really just for tonight i thought that was an interesting dichotomy and as i said that slid into place yeah. for that character yeah, totally great um I think for me, it, it perfectly encapsulates the fact that the best thing we can possibly do is have lots of different representation because that doesn't represent the entire bisexual community. And a lot of people would be like, actually, I don't want people Absolutely to not. think of bisexuality like that because uh, I think a lot of people also have this idea that bisexual people are insincere, that they're more prone to cheat, that they're more pr- promiscuous, you know, etc. Um, that they they don't they can't settle down, um, which is not true. Um, I think if she'd been the only bisexual character I'd had in the book, but of course yeah. Amy, 
the person whose viewpoint we're in all the time is by, and she's very much one person at a time, and only if I really exactly. like them. <laughs> so almost yeah, the complete and, opposite. And I think you know it goes to show that I think it's important to have lots and lots of different people represented in this way because that's the best way that we can actually represent uh, sexuality as a whole by recognizing that sexuality is just a part of a person and that people are different. Yeah, um, The last one, um, I think, is Frodo and Sam from The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's... I mean, I reread them fairly recently, and I remember saying at the time, this is a lot more queer than I was expecting. <laughs> and the thing is, you can read it as queer. I don't think Tolkien necessarily intended it that way, but he was coming off the back of yeah. World War One, where you formed those really intense, almost romantic friendships that might be yes. sexually platonic. Um, and I... Um, but they have all the affection of a really intense sort of almost yes, you know, couple I dynamic. Think that is a very, very important thing to remember is, of course, yes, that World War One, where where you had the, the sort of the loss of this idea of kind of how are men supposed to treat one another and things like that, because when faced with these absolute terrors and horrors, these men had to find comfort and love and goodness in something around them um, and a lot of them found it in one another and that's not in it necessarily in any way a sexual thing um, but in a form of camaraderie in something which really helped them kind of stabilize themselves or hold on to you know a part of themselves which was being challenged in a way that in a setup which is very weird if you think about war War is incredibly weird, particularly the way that it's sort of it's waged now. It's not short conflicts. You know, this was a very, very long conflict, which was very odd. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so just to wrap that little bit up, um, Frodo and Sam do end up just getting closer and closer friendship wise to the point that when Sam marries Rosie, he actually moves in with Frodo. Yeah, um, it's because it, it's several years after before Frodo goes into the West. Um, because he never really recovered and obviously Sam's heartbroken when he's gone and in some ways you could argue that Sam and Frodo love each other in a way that nobody else can touch yeah um again I don't you can read it sexually if you want to but I don't think it was intended that no. way um but there's there's more than just your typical oh this is my best mate kind of thing yeah. going on there um so yeah it, it kind of if you wanted to read it as a polyamorous relationship with Sam as like the the top of the pocket <laughs> that you could do is what I'm saying. Agree. <laughs> okay, um, so I've spoken about bisexual rep in my own work. I will mention Kelsey yes. as well, who turns up in several books. Kelsey polyamorous. She doesn't believe one person can actually fulfil all your needs, or that she can fulfil all of somebody else's needs. Um, she's very much about this unselfish love and sex and whatever, as long as there's honesty. Um, but again, she would also define herself as bisexual or pansexual as well. So as Madeline was saying, I like to have lots of different types of bisexual rep because yeah. no, and I no should also say that, you know, if you are a writer, you don't need to have have represent every type of bisexual person. I'm just saying that as a whole, our industry is very it's important that as a whole industry that we 
open our arms and allow lots of different forms of of representation to be in and we don't gate keep that even within our own community by saying well that doesn't represent me it might not represent you but it could rep represent someone the important thing is that we don't say there's only one way of doing it um, and we don't allow only one way of it being presented um, but yes i mean there are a lot of bisexual characters yeah, uh, in in the sort of the harper and blackthorn series and in the unveiled series you know um and obviously, I, <laughs> there are quite a few bisexual characters in my own work as well. Um, not least Rufus. <laughs> Who, um, in some respects, almost does, yeah. I should say, does hit that stereotype in that he he's not a sexual deviant, but he enjoys having sex. And he enjoys having sex with people, and when he likes people, um, he will be in a he will sort of get with them. Um, but the big thing, obviously, with with him, uh, when you meet him in um, the 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 first book, is that he is having just casual sex with people, and the reason he's having casual sex with people is that he's lost the love of his life, and he doesn't want anything that's serious. In fact, he can't even deal with the idea of having something serious, but he does still enjoy sex. And he does have these very intense kind of friendships and sort of emotional relationships with people. Uh, he is one of these people who can, I think you could say, could fall in love quite easily and has fallen in love quite easily in the past. You know, he when he is having sex with someone, he it will be something, usually something that meets the mind as well. Yeah. There will be this intense thing and everyone, and the way he sees it is that once that's done, everyone goes home happy. Um, of course, some people don't go ho home happy because they yeah. perhaps would want to continue having a relationship with him. But for the most part, he's been quite lucky in that he's just gone in, he's been satisfied, the other person's been satisfied, and then they've both walked away from it. Um, in terms of other stuff, uh, obviously people have have encountered a little bit of Kestrel so far. Um, and Kestrel is also yeah. bisexual. Um, that's straight out from, from the beginning. And the nice thing is, because it's urban fantasy, um, she... We have that terminology. And, there's, and, and it doesn't feel strange to use that terminology either. Um, so she will flat out say that she is bisexual. Um, and that's not an issue in any shape or form. Yeah. Um, to me, it's quite nice to actually also write that version of someone who's bisexual because um, with Rufus, there was an element of secrecy behind things, obviously, depending where he is, because of the, the laws and stuff like that. Uh, whereas with Kestrel, there's none. She does. She doesn't need to worry about anything like that at all because it's uh, yeah. it's the modern day, and she's not in a position whereby she's going to have to worry about that. She has lots of other things to worry about instead. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, in conclusion, and we've overrun again. We're not doing very well. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, having bisexual characters is an opportunity to explore the grey area where people don't want to conform to one identity, one sexuality, or even any label at all. Yeah. So think of the I'd be gay for you trope, which actually does have a lot of truth in it. There are definitely real life examples. Yes. Um, I think that 
I, I just I want to see more kindness when people consider different explorations of this form of representation. You know, not everything needs an ironclad yeah. identity on it. Um, a romantic friendship, a great love that is never le- never sexually consummated can be just as fulfilling as one that is. The important thing is that there are a variety of stories. And that's what it really comes down to. Yeah, absolutely. I think. And I guess, while I want lots of good bisexual rep, and indeed all rep, um, let's not have our desire for representation eclipse the fact that platonic loves and friendships are just as important. So, you know, men lately uh, are kind of being shortchanged on that front. And it, it was an issue, as Madeline mm. said, with the 90s, that that's a real problem. And that's the sort of thing that will have a detrimental knock-on effect for everybody. So in the same way that me not seeing any bisexual representation kind of was kind of yeah. a bit of a bit of a head fuck for me going growing up. Um, men not being able to see healthy relationships where they are emotionally involved with each other as friends is also going to be an issue. So um, fan fiction and everything is fine, but too much projecting and then getting angry and trying to force things into a shape they were never intended to be is also a yes. problem. Um- but you are allowed to take from things what you will. Um, and that is the beauty of it. That is yeah. a nice thing. Um, and it's okay to be disappointed if you actually did feel that something was heading towards a certain direction and then it, it wasn't delivered. Um, but you, it's worth considering why. And it's also worth sort of asking yourself, was that actually something which was promised? Were, are they queer baiting? Um, or was i was i projecting um and be honest with yourself about it um it's okay if you were projecting you are allowed to see things in the way that you wish to see them um you're not wrong for doing that um but it will help with an argument and will help with actually making things better if we are honest about when people are queer baiting when people are taking the piss and when people aren't yeah definitely Okay, so that's all we've got time for this week. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. Um, And this week, Jules, I believe that you have got one for us. Yes. Now, you're going to have to wait until November to read or listen to this, I'm afraid. (laughs) But I received an advanced review copy of uh, Travis Baldry's latest book, his follow-up and prequel to... Uh, Legends and Lattes, which is called Bookshops and Bone Dust. And it's brilliant. It's set 20 years before Legends and Lattes, and it sees a young and impetuous Viv, the orc, um, on a mercenary campaign, her first big one with a well-known group of mercenaries. And she does something stupid, gets injured, almost dies, and then is holed up in a seaside town for recuperation. Um, From there, when she can finally get around, she ends up befriending the, the beleaguered uh, owner of a bookstore that is basically going downhill and not doing very well. So the whole thing sort of turns into a fixer-upper story for this bookshop. And yet there is a necromancer threat le- lurking in the background. Um, there's obviously the coziness and the descriptions of pastries <laughs> and sweets and things um, as before. There, There is a hint at a sort of, um, sort of slightly too too immature to really get involved love affair as well and it's just incredibly sweet and there is a lovely hint at the end of some of 
you know, there might be more to come after Legends and Lattes as well. So I've got my fingers really crossed for that. It was very, it was cool. It was a, a great cosy fantasy. I would say it's as good as Legends and Lattes, even though it slants at a slightly different angle. Okay, that is very, very promising. I am so excited for it. I really, really am. I cannot wait to read this. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait for you to yeah. read it either. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note guys we will say thank you very much for listening and we will catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes for more information visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.